Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Monday, the 17th of May. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, because we focused on Israel, given the recent events there in our Friday episode of World Review last week, we decided to do our guest episode as a separate piece of output and to to publish it early um, the week after we're recording this. So we are recording this about three or four days before you, the listener, will be hearing to it. But fortunately, we have a long-term topic to discuss, so it's unlikely to have aged at all in that time. We're going to take a look at the state of social democracy and the centre-left and the left more widely um, in Europe and also in the US. It's a very live topic. The um, Labour Party in the UK has been struggling as recent local elections and, and a by-election on May the 6th demonstrated. In this week's episode of The New Statesman, as we record this, um, Tony Blair has written a cover essay on what he thinks the Labour Party should do to get out of its trouble. But he also talked about the wider difficulties facing social democratic parties across Europe. The challenges in front of the German SPD, for example, before the French Socialist Party. And obviously, that's a big part of the story, too. So we're very pleased to be joined for a discussion about all of this by Tarek Abushadi, who is an assistant professor at the Department of Political Science at the University of Zurich. Tarek is a a great expert on European social democracy and a rare nuanced voice in arguments about what social democratic parties are are facing in terms of their challenges, but also what sort of answers might help them um, navigate their difficulties. So we're really pleased to have him here. He's also the the host and producer of the Transformation of European Politics podcast, which I would strongly recommend if you want really intelligent academic discussion of um, the shifts in European politics, both in terms of social democracy, but also other parts of the political spectrum and other angles on it all. I'd I'd really recommend giving that a listen. So first of all, Tarek, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm going to start with a really, really big, broad question, which is, do you agree with the idea that social democracy in Europe is in crisis? We often make that sort of claim, but do you first of all agree with that? And secondly, just summing up the picture, 
Why do you think that's the case, if so? I think it's fair to say that European social democracy is in crisis, or at least European social democratic parties are in a big electoral crisis. So if you look at uh, Western Europe and also Central and Eastern Europe, most social democratic parties have um, received election results that were among their historically worst. Uh, so that was the case in France and the Netherlands a couple of years ago, uh, where they fell to really uh, one-digit uh, numbers in their election results. The German SPD isn't doing well. You've already mentioned uh, the Labour Party. So if you look at their electoral results, really, in, uh, in many countries, European social democratic parties are facing a crisis. They're also only heading a few governments. So if you look at what Europe looked like, let's say 20 years ago, and you had Schröder and Blair in office, for example, and really there was a lot of power uh, in, the, in, in the social democratic party family, this has certainly changed and this is not likely to going to go away soon. I think, I think, th I think that's right. And I mean, just, just looking, as I said, at the, the headlines in the last, the last week or so, You know, you had the, the difficulties Labour faced um, in, in the English local elections. You had the 40th anniversary of François Mitterrand's election in France, which felt like a sort of contrast with the, the Socialist Party's current difficulties. You had the German SPD pick its chancellor candidate or confirm its chancellor candidate against the backdrop of polls putting the party on 14%. You know, the Dutch PVDA is, is apparently looking at going into a possible coalition led by the centre-right in the Netherlands as the fourth largest coalition member party. So, you know, wh wherever you look, it feels like there's, there's a social democratic party in difficulty. But what Explaining that to someone, particularly someone who hasn't been following closely these, these, these political trends, how would you sum up the causes of those difficulties to the extent that we can generalize and say that they, they do face some similar challenges? So there's certainly a common socio-structural challenge that all social democratic parties in Europe are facing. This doesn't mean that we can reduce the reason for, to their, for their electoral problems or their, their crisis to one single, one monocausal explanation. But the main socio-structural shift that constitutes the challenge for social democratic parties is that on the one hand, social democratic parties have lost their former core electorate, and this is the working class, the industrial working class. They haven't necessarily lost it because those voters decided to leave social democratic parties, but because social, stru so social structures in Europe have changed so fundamentally. So we have seen a huge increase in education. We have seen occupational structures change, and we have seen new issues come onto the political agenda. And within this mix of this changing context, social democratic parties somehow need to manage to build a new electoral coalition. And this electoral coalition necessarily comes with trade-offs. And this is also why it's so difficult to say they did one thing and because of that one thing, they lost out. These explanations are usually um, simply wrong because there is an, 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 a genuine dilemma. And this dilemma can be explained on the one hand, there's strong pressure for them to broaden their coalition, to find new people who vote for them. This is, for example, an, a more educated urban middle class. But on the other hand, not to alienate the, the people who used to support them and who were their core supporters. And this is the general dilemma. And this dilemma becomes even more difficult to solve for social democratic parties, as we are also seeing generational transformation. 
And with newer voters entering the electorate, these voters are much more volatile. They're less tied to the mainstream political parties because they're not members of these traditional organizations anymore, like labor unions, for example. So the pressure is increasing on social democratic parties because their traditional electorate is disappearing socio-structurally, but also as they're getting older and older, they're also losing a lot of people to um, dying, if we're honest. Um, and so this is this generational uh, turnover that's also making it even more difficult for social democratic parties. I want to dig a bit more into that European story, but just actually, Emily, um, I'd be interested to hear from you listening to that. How much do you think that um, resonates as a description of forces in American politics as well? Because I never know quite know how much to see what Tarek described so well as as a as a continental or a European phenomenon, or whether it's something apply, applying more to the wider democratic West. What what do you think? First of all, a major difference between the US and European systems is that ours is not a parliamentary system, right? We're a two-party system. So, and have been, although those two parties have changed, that's basically been the case for for all of US history. Shout out to the Whig party. You know, so although there is a Green Party and although that Green Party can take votes from Democratic Party, as you know, we saw with Ralph Nader and saw with Jill Stein uh, in, in previous elections, for the most part, the shift left, I think we've seen, has been driven by forces within the Democratic Party itself. That's number one. The second thing is, I, I think that to a certain extent, this idea that Democrats are losing low-income voters and the you know the, the the core of the Democratic base is no longer with the Democrats is overstated. Like if you just look at the breakdown of who voted for Trump and who voted for Biden, per New York Times exit polls, more people who made less than $100,000 voted for Biden and more people who made more than $100,000 voted for Trump. So this idea that like the Republican Party is the real party of the working class is not necessarily grounded in reality. That said, as we saw in 2016, there is a certain part of the Democratic working middle class uh, voting base, which is which is white, right, that, uh, that did leave the Democratic Party. Now in Michigan, for example, Biden was able to get those voters back. But I, so I guess what I'm saying is that on the one hand, it's overstated. If you look at if, if you're taking, you know, low income or middle class or working class, however you describe those terms, voters overall. But but there is a, a version of that same phenomenon um, happening here in the United States. And I think largely, I, I think as the Democratic Party becomes more associated with urban centers, and by that, I don't mean like with the wealthy, I mean, with people who live in cities and, and the Republican Party more with rural centers, we're going to see that trend continue. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned Michigan, Emily, and I mean, I, I remember around 2016, around the time of um, Trump's uh, election win, and not long after Brexit, and at a time when the the radical right or the populist right was on the rise on continental Europe as well, a, a pretty much straight line was drawn in a lot of the commentary between sort of Michigan and the parts, for example, of the English working class north that voted for Brexit to the parts of France, maybe former communist voting areas that now supported Marine Le Pen to former, you know, to, 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 to sort of um, voters in the former east of Germany who turned to the AFD. And, you know, the, the narrative was that there is a sort of a, there was a common experience or a common way of seeing the world that united these voters. And these were in many cases voters who turned away from the conventional center left to the to, to the populist right. I mean, Tarek, obviously, 
you know, it's it, it, we're now sort of five five years on from that moment. How much do you think there? How much truth do you think there is in in that? And I think also relatedly, I mean, the corollary of that observation is that social democratic parties slash the Democrats in the US became too professional, too um, white collar, too um, polished. You know, it was it was Hillary Clinton or the Remain campaign in the UK or the professional politicians of the German Social Democrats or the French um, Socialists under Francois Hollande. And, and you know, it is, it is a compelling argument. And the gulf between those parts of, of, of their respective countries and the political class, including represented in the mainstream left, is obviously very large. But how much, how satisfactory do you find that as, a, as an explanation? So I think the narrative is intuitively appealing and it makes a lot of sense. On the one hand, you see how social democratic parties have lost a lot of voters and you see that parts of the working class don't seem to support them anymore. And on the other hand, you see that radical right parties are gaining in support. And we also see that they have mobilized a share of the working class and the lower middle class. So intuitively, it makes a lot of sense to think these are the same voters. However, if you look at it empirically, and this is something we've done over the last years quite a lot, then you see that um, these are actually not the same voters. So simply put, today's radical right voters are not former social democratic supporters. In contrast, where social democratic parties have really lost most of their voters in the last 10 years in Europe is to more progressive, socially liberal parties. So it's exactly not this idea of the the white working class uh, that has made up the biggest losses, but it's a quite mixed picture. Bluntly put, social democratic parties have lost everyone. They have lost everyone in all directions. However, they've actually overproportionately lost educated voters and they've overproportionately lost to more progressive parties. And would you say that's more because the parties in question have changed or because those voters have changed? Or, or is it a bit of both? It's really a bit of both. So first of all, we see this generational change in who the electorate is. And we have, as I mentioned already, these younger voters with less party attachment um, who can find a new home and are much more freely deciding who they vote for. Then I think what's important is also that the um, the issue space in which political parties compete in has changed in the last 10 to 20 years. So the big two issues that dominated the elections and discourse around elections in the last 10 years were immigration and climate change. And on both of these issues, social democratic parties have these positions in the middle ground. And that wasn't really satisfying to anyone. So people who with progressive attitudes then left for more socially liberal parties. And then this is what caused really this, this decline in one direction, but also social democratic parties weren't really able to pick up centrist voters because one thing that's really important is that also the mainstream right has changed and many mainstream right parties have become a little more centrist. They've stopped these all out attacks on the welfare state. So many centrist voters have found a home with the mainstream right. And so what happened is that social democratic parties in the end didn't fully appeal to anyone and to no one in this changing electorate. If it's not in fact true that social democratic voters are leaving to go to the right, why do you think that that narrative 
is is so persistent. As I said, it's it, it makes sense. First of all, I think it's it's clear why people have this idea. We see this correlation of, on the one hand, social democratic decline, and on the other hand, the um, the rise of the radical right. I think, however, what's driving this image is also an idea of a social structure that is long gone. When people think of the social structure and the, the working class, they seem to think of the 1960s and 70s. And when they think of the working class, they think of a white male industrial worker. However, these people don't exist anymore. Or very few of them uh, still exist. So this is, I think, why, where also this, this, this wrong narrative comes from is, is this image of who the working class is and why social democratic parties don't appeal to them anymore. And then I just wanted to pick up on the the last thing you said answering uh, Jeremy's last question, which is that right-wing parties are actually becoming more moderate. I think here in the United States, uh, given that that's just like <laughs> yeah. so not our experience right now, it's, it's I, I guess I looking at Europe and looking at, for example, uh, the, the Dutch ruling coalition or Dutch ruling party co-opting some of Gert Wilder's rhetoric for himself. Um, one one looks at this and thinks, okay, so the Social Democratic Party, you have voters who are, who are unsatisfied and going to the left. And then you have the center-right parties co-opting right-wing right wing rhetoric. But you're saying that actually that's just another narrative. Like that's just another story that I'm telling myself. And that's not bored out by reality either. No, I think you're absolutely right. So I think- Love uh, that. Yes. <laughs> so I need to qualify how uh, mainstream right parties have moderated. So you're absolutely right that A, the Republican Party in comparison is just a radical right party and not a mainstream right party anymore. And B, that Europe's mainstream right parties have very often co-opted the radical right on especially the issue of immigration. So on the issue of immigration, basically all mainstream right parties and many of the social democratic parties too have moved to the right. Where many moderates or center-right parties have moderated their position in the early 2000s and um, is on more economic questions and social policy questions. There we, we can see that um, they have stopped a bit the very neoliberal agenda uh, that came out of the 1990s and have found a more centrist position. And there, of course, the, the, the prime example of this is Angela Merkel in Germany. I will turn it back over to Jeremy after this, but I just I think that's so interesting in that here, not to keep being like here in the United States, but um, that's so not what we have here, right? Where the Republican Party in many ways remains the party of of big business and corporate America, but has really gone all in culturally on being right wing, right? So in a way, you're seeing well, not the inverse, but but a, a very different phenomenon. Again, this can be explained to a certain degree by the electoral system and the party system, where in Another system, the Republican Party would be two parties by now, I assume. Um, but in this, in, in, in this, in the strict nature of the the two party system, one faction in the party needs to win, and that is now uh, the Trump faction. And this is clearly led to the Republican Party really becoming a populist radical right party. To a certain degree, you can see a similar tendency in the UK, where uh, in another electoral and party system, the Brexit issue would have probably led to a party split, right? Where you have this more business-minded type of uh, conservative versus the more populist anti-European faction. And again, in, in, in a different in different conditions, these would 
probably be two parties. And what you can see in the in the Conservative Party also is that one faction has won, and then this is shaping the party as a whole more than maybe in another system. I'd like to ask you about a specific example in Europe that's being touted a lot in the UK, but I believe it's also been cited in the discourse in the US and also here in Germany, and that's the, that of Denmark. I mean, in the particularly in the aftermath of Labour's um, loss in the recent by-election in Hartlepool, which for uh, listeners outside the UK is a sort of traditionally working class um, uh, part of North, northeastern England, where the Labour Party has historically been by far the strongest political force until recently when it when it lost to the Conservatives. And in the wake of this, one of the examples cited was that of the Danish Social Democrats, who um, in the recent recent years have have moved to the right culturally in quite a stark way. So they they've backed some pretty draconian policies on migration, for example. They, they're waging this battle against what they call ghettoization in, in Danish cities. Um, and it's cited as a success because it, the party got back into power in 2019, and it's been doing better than some other European Social Democratic parties in some polling since then. Now, that would seem to cut against um, a lot of what you say. What, what, what's your take on it? I think we need to distinguish trying to explain the one Danish case or more more even just that one single Danish election from what lessons we can draw for, for European social democracy as a whole. And what happened in Denmark is true that A, the, the social democrats really moved to the right on questions of immigration especially, and they managed to attract a share of the radical right and other more right-wing voters, actually not that many, but they lost at the same time to more progressive parties. And in the Danish bloc system, what this means is that the Social Democrats, they didn't win votes, they actually lost votes. However, this, this mix, the, this constellation led to the left bloc growing and then Social Democratic parties, uh, th that Social Democratic party could lead this election. Two questions then for how we can draw lessons from this for the broader European context. The first is, do these strategies work? And again, this is something we can empirically look at and we've done a lot. And our answer is largely no. So the voters that are available to social democracy are also generally voters who have left-wing attitudes on economic questions, voters who are in favor of redistribution. They, and as we can empirically show, they want social democratic parties with more progressive positions on these other, on, on more cultural issues, right? So they want a social demo democratic party that is more pro-immigration, pro-gender equality, also um, that ha takes a stronger stance against climate change and these questions. So we can empirically show this. And so what will happen is if social democracy changes to a more left nationalist, left authoritarian position like the Danish Social Democrats, then they will likely lose a lot of voters. Now, the next question is, well, if they do that, will this work in a similar way as in Denmark? So it could be then that um, the Social Democratic parties are basically the sacrificial lamb for the left bloc. Then they, they, they move to that position, they make the left bloc grow, Potentially, they're not the strongest party in that block anymore, but at least the left block could govern. This could happen in some countries. But then we are seeing that in many European countries, those coalition dynamics are much more complex 
and different from, from, from Denmark. So we see in Germany, we see in Austria um, that the conservative parties can also govern with the Greens. So social democracy might sacrifice itself um, for the size of the left bloc and they will end up with a coalition that they're not part of uh, themselves. A, po- a point that I make in my New Statesman column this week is, is actually that, and I think, I think comes across in what you're saying there, is that so-called lessons from countries that use forms of proportional representation almost never work when applied to the British political system. I mean, in the context, for example, of Denmark being cited as an example for the Labour Party, because, I mean, even if the strategy that you described would work, where, as you say, the Social Democrats would be the sort of the sacrificial part of the left bloc, they would they would lose, they would shed some of their voters to other left-wing parties in order to win over some socially conservative working-class voters. Even if that did work um, more, more widely on continental Europe, it really wouldn't work in in the majoritarian first past the post system because there is no left bloc. You know, there is. I mean, there's occasional talks for progressive alliance or electoral pacts between Labour, the Lib Dems, and the Greens, but those those other two parties are very very small. And it, you know, under under first past the post, you don't have those dynamics. So I just I think that actually, as with examples drawn from, I don't know. Spain or Portugal or Germany or, or, or any other s- such countries with forms of proportional electoral system, I, I just think you can't apply them to, to, to the UK. Sorry, Emily, I think you wanted to come in there. Yeah, I did have one last question, which relates to what you were just saying, Tarek, which is, you know, I think very often um, the conversation that comes out after a, and, and this we actually did have here as well, but but especially in Europe, you have this kind of debate where you have people say, either that the social democratic party needs to go needs to be more radical or that uh it needs to you know forget these culture war issues which i hate by the way because i think very often when people say that they mean just forget issues that relate to women and people of color and climate change and like etc but no putting that to the side and you can also um, see what they look like when they make these suggestions usually yeah right right um so forget those and just focus on winning back your white working class voters and it sounds like what you're saying is that actually that's a either that's a false choice or it's not even a choice that's really available to them if they if they want to win yes i fully agree so uh it's not really a choice because these issues are not going to go away these are fundamental questions of social justice in this day and age and it's they don't exist because somehow social democratic parties made these issues magically appear. Mm-hmm. And once they only focus on the economy, these issues are going to go away again. And secondly, um, it is important that, again, we look at the social structure and who social democratic parties need to appeal to in order to have a broader electoral coalition. And there are just enough voters for, for whom this is important. And a, again, the, 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 this is a broader coalition that includes people of color and women um, also in the working class, but then also educated middle class voters that need to be part of a, an electoral coalition of the left. And I think, again, um, if, we, if I look at the, um, the UK debate about labor, people seem to underestimate the share of educated middle-class voters, professionals in the in the UK electorate. Mm-hmm. And so if Labour changed its strategy, and at the moment Labour appeals more to, on average, more to professionals than to, say, routine workers. But if that were, were reversed, Labour would lose a lot more voters because this share of the electorate that are routine workers is 
getting smaller and smaller, and we just have more educated middle-class voters. This is just a fact that social democratic parties need to deal with. If you want to hear more about the woes of the British Labour Party, we'd strongly recommend listening to the New Statesman podcast, where our colleagues from the UK politics desk have been going in detail into the, the party's recent electoral difficulties and what it can do in the future. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the New Statesman on digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Well, now it's time for a section that we like to call You Ask Us. You know, we've been talking about the sad plight of social democratic parties in Europe. And this week, listeners wanted to know, is there a case in Europe where that is not true, where actually there's been a social democratic success that's been overlooked? There is a social democratic success that um, is not talked about so much. And this is if we look to uh, Portugal and to a certain degree, also Spain, right? This is where um, the social democrats are in power. And especially in, in, in Portugal, they're doing very well electorally. I think it's the question is difficult how much we can compare the Portuguese socio-structural situation and party system to other European countries. But I think what, um, what unites Portugal and also Spain is that their social democratic parties have one with a decidedly left-wing agenda. And especially in Spain, too, with an effort to... Um, become more progressive to emphasize questions such as gender equality and by this to to shape this uh, progressive coalition and to gain votes um, among these voters. Interesting. I'd just like to ask a follow-up on that about about another quote-unquote success story, and that's Joe Biden. I mean, how much do you think Biden's win in the election last year, which wasn't a foregone conclusion, how much do you think that could actually teach others on the whatever you want to call it, liberal or centre-left parts of politics about how to win elections in our times? Or, or do you think it's just it was too rooted in the particularly unusual circumstances of American politics in 2020? So I'm not so sure how much the uh, campaign and the, the election can teach European social democratic parties. But I think the way 
Biden has governed since can be a lesson. And I think what it sh shows is that there is an opportunity for exactly that type of progressive coalition that I have described and that the, um, you know, the, the lower middle class white workers are not going crazy because there is now a stronger emphasis on descriptive representation, for example, and because these policies are passed. And at the same time, Biden increases support with some classic left policies such as infrastructure investment, but also manages, I think, to, to really appeal to both sides. And again, I think it shows that this those quote unquote culture war issues aren't so bad for those white working class voters. So the new statesman, by the time that you listener are hearing this, it, it will be last week, but this week we published this big essay by Tony Blair, which you should read. And then I wrote just about the US component of that. But in my little write-up, I observed that when Trump did well in 2016, he was promising to make people's lives better, right? He was doing it in a nativist, racist, xenophobic way. But the focus was your politicians have forgotten you. They're not providing for you. I'm going to provide for you. When you go to 2020, instead, you have this obsession with the culture wars, with us versus them. With It was all about that. It was not about really providing for, for people anymore. And the way that Biden's governing is, right? At least domestically, the focus is, okay, how can we make people's lives better? Like, what is the purpose of government? And how can we use the structures that we have to improve people's lives? And it turns out that that's more appealing to people than, you know, saying that we're going to make a garden of American national heroes or whatever. And so I, I wrote this in my piece last week or this week, whatever. Um, and I think it's true, which is that the culture wars are not only a trap for Democrats or social Democrats or progressives, they can also be a trap for the right. And I think it's important for people who are who find themselves on the left to remember that. Could you just give us some final concluding comments on that, Tariq? I mean, one of the one of the things in Blair's essay that gave me the most pause for thought was his points about Social Democrats need to avoid what what he sort of called woke culture, and he said you know, that the moderate middle is put off by these identity issues. What do, what do you think about that? Um, I, I also thought it was a very interesting essay, and I was enjoy reading uh, Tony Blair's analysis. But there, I have to say, I fundamentally disagree with him. Again, as I've already mentioned, these issues aren't going to go away. And of course, you can say some radical type of so-called identity politics or wokeness is off-putting, but that's a tautology, right? If I make something radical enough, then it will be off-putting for, for other, some people. I think many of the issues at the center of this, uh, that, such as addressing structural racism, are issues that are fundamentally the issues of the left. And I think what you could see in his essay is that his idea of progressive politics isn't really the progressive politics of today. And it's the essence of progressive politics that what progressive means needs to change with time. And it seemed a little bit that he was still stuck in the in 1997 and what progressive politics means in 1997. And I think it's worth thinking about how long 1997 was ago, right? This is the, a lot of time has passed. We're now as far away from 1997 as 1997 was from 1973, so I guess the first oil crisis. So just to put this into perspective, um, of course, what people want has fundamentally changed. And this also means that progressive parties need to address changing progressive issues. And um, there will not be a viable party on the left that doesn't uh, include these mov movements and addresses these issues. Very interesting. 
Thank you so much, Tarek, for your perspectives on all of this. It's good to get away from a lot of the cliches and the sort of received wisdom on, on a lot of this stuff, which I think as your, as your research and that of your colleagues shows often doesn't actually reflect the realities. So all that leaves is for us to say what we're going to be looking ahead to in the next days. Obviously, we're recording this a few days before it will go out. So we're talking about the week in which this goes out. So the week beginning May the 17th. So Tarek, as your guest, why don't you start? What will you be looking ahead to in World Affairs? As a political scientist, I'll be looking at Austria, where uh, Chancellor Kurz, since yesterday, is now an official suspect in a large-scale corruption investigation. And the big question is going to be if he's actually going to be indicted. To clarify, I think he would, so he would not be indicted for corruption, but actually for lying to parliament. Um, but if that happens, this puts a lot of pressure on him. And the question is if he would survive this. Generally, of course, I have to say that the most important event that's happening next week is the Eurovision Song Contest that's happening on Saturday. Of, of course. <laughs> Can't forget that. Emily, what about you? I will also be watching Eurovision. Uh, no. Well, if I can find a way to stream it. But no, I think, you know, this will go out after our Israel episode has gone out. And obviously, there's so much focus on that right now, and rightly so. But there is still this other huge story, which is COVID in India. And I will continue to to watch that. I will be watching events in Latin America, um, first of all, generally, because the uh, it is expected to experience its one millionth COVID death uh, in the next few days, tragically, and an illustration of how disproportionately um, Latin America has been hit by the pandemic. But also, um, you know, it, the, the, the indirect effects of COVID-19 have been very severe there, the socioeconomic effects. And I think there, Colombia remains an important case mm. and something to watch. Um, the country is now in the third week of its anti-government protests, which were unleashed at the end of April by a controversial tax reform proposal by uh, the president, Ivan Duque, and uh, he's actually withdrawn that, but but the, the protests have snowballed into a sort of wider expression of dissatisfaction at social divisions and rising poverty in the country. And it looks quite possible that the, that the country will turn to the um, populist left in the election next year. So be worth watching to see how that develops in the next in the next days. So all that remains is to say thank you ever so much, Tarek Abu-Yushadi, for joining us for this fascinating conversation on social democracy. If you have enjoyed this episode of the New Statesman World Review, please tell your friends, family, and casual acquaintances to like, subscribe, listen, and remember to sign up for the free newsletter component of the World Review experience at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. Reminder, Tarek's podcast, The Transformation of European Politics, is well worth a listen. Our producer has been Chris Stone. Thank you for listening and until next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.